0: and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.
2: Hey, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Hey, this is producer Adam. I'm doing the intro this week. Don't worry about it. The show this week is about being deceived or getting fooled. And I've been thinking about such things lately, not just because of the massive disinformation in which we exist, but also because after going down a Wikipedia hole, I ended up reading about the Greek historian Thucydides, Thucydides lived around 2,400 years ago, and in 431 BCE, he started writing what would eventually be called the History of the Peloponnesian War, a hugely important text. Uh, But at the beginning, he has this little aside to say that he's going to try to tell the story as accurately as possible, but that it's tricky because it requires trusting what other people believe to be true, because he has to interview them. So he writes, all men show the same uncritical acceptance of the oral traditions handed on to them. This shows how little trouble most people take in their search for the truth. They happily resort to ready-made opinions. And he moves on from there. And I know it's not revelatory to suggest that we can learn from history, but uh, it's interesting to be reminded that being scammed, being fooled, being convinced of something that is not true is not new. And being invested in why such things happen has been worthwhile for a very long time. Scammers and misinformation peddlers love a crisis, and right now the world is full of them. So with all of that in mind, this week Indre talked to psychologists Dan Simons and Christopher Chabri about all of the above, and their new book, Nobody's Fool, why we get taken in and what we can do about it.
3: Dan Simons and Chris Chabri, welcome to Inquiring Minds. It's so great to have you on the show. Thanks
4: for having us on. Great to be here.
3: So you've written a book called Nobody's Fool, and of course, it's all about how we are everybody's fool <laughs> at all times. Um, so let's jump right in and tell us about one of your favorite like stories of being conned. Whether it's you know you or somebody else, or why is this important? How are we, how are we getting conned?
4: We haven't been kind of the victims of a of a giant con, right? So we, that we haven't you know
3: of that we know
4: of exactly. <laughs> we, we haven't we haven't sent uh, our bank accounts to any Nigerian princes trying to recover their lost treasure. Um, you know, I think one interesting story uh, that we talk about a little bit in the book is we weren't exactly conned, but we were misled, and not in the way that we thought we were. We read this headline from a newspaper article about a, a new book from Jessica Hinman that was about uh, her experiences. It was a memoir, and it was her experiences performing in an orchestra that faked, right? So they they didn't actually play. So she was a violinist in a fake orchestra.
3: Like Um, Millie Vanilli, but the symphony version.
4: Exactly. In fact, the headline of the the article was something like Millie Violini. And what was interesting about this was it was framed as, uh, in the headline of this article was, I was a fake violinist in a world-class orchestra. And our initial take on that was, no way, right that, That's just not possible. So we initially thought, okay, let's look into this a little bit, right. And because you know if, if you've ever gone and watched a concert or if you know anything about classical music, the idea that an entire orchestra could be faking, right. I mean, how do you fake symbols? Right? It just doesn't it doesn't work. The music's coming from a clear place, and the claim was that it was all being played from a speakers using a CD player. right. So our initial take was, no, that can't be right. So we started digging a little bit more and reading articles about it, and you know, I was like, okay, is this entire memoir sort of a scam in the tradition of fake memoirists? Right? This is a creative writing professor. Maybe they're taking a lot of liberties and making a really compelling story as sort of a you know memoir hoax. Um, so we read the memoir and did a little more digging and talked to people who had written articles about this and. Um, So, which is what we should be doing whenever we think we might be getting deceived, is to ask a lot more questions. And we kept digging and digging, realized, nowhere in the book does it say that it was an orchestra, right? It wasn't actually an orchestra. It was a violinist and a keyboardist and a penny whistle player playing at shopping malls, right, and faking to CDs. Um, So it was kind of new agey, sounds like Titanic was the name of the book, right? So how did it get morphed from people playing new age music in a, you know, in a shopping mall to faking in a world-class orchestra. So we went back to the original orchestra. We were fooled, not by the memoir. The memoir seems to be completely legitimate. It was an interesting story about her challenges overcoming all sorts of problems over the course of her life and what it was like to do this for years when she had wanted to be a concert violinist. And what we were fooled by wasn't even the article, it was just the headline. So... That was a case in which, you know, headlines can be really deceiving. If, if, you, if you know about how writing articles for newspaper works, it's often the case that the person who writes the story interviews a bunch of people, learns about it, writes a story based on what they've been told, and then somebody else writes the headlines for it to try and get as much clicking as you can. So the article that was about this person's memoir and talking about her performances took the famous conductor... And that says, okay, if it's a famous conductor, it must be a famous classical conductor. And if it's a famous classical conductor, that means they're performing in orchestras. And if they're performing in orchestras, that means it must be a world-class you know, violinist in orchestra. And it wasn't at all. So, so it was. It, it's not really a case of being conned, but it's a case of how easily we can be deceived by something that's just not necessarily deliberately trying to deceive. It's just people getting confused. And then the end result though is we're deceived, and we have to really ask ourselves, is that really true? Right? And we don't do that often enough.
3: And you start out by, or you, at least in your book, talk a lot about the truth bias. Uh, and yeah, you know, I was—I went for a run this morning, and I, I always pass, there's like this little forest school uh, in Golden Gate Park with these really cute little three-year-olds. And uh, I always see them in the same place in the park. And today, they were sitting on a little bench in a row, listening to somebody read them a story. And it just occurred to me how how kind of ridiculous it is that these three-year-old children who could be doing any number of things choose to listen to an adult saying ridiculous things. And yet, if you talk to a three-year-old, like the best way to get them to calm down and focus on you is just to get down to their eye level and talk to them. And somehow that works. Like it seems... Of all the things, right? Like that seems like a kind of stupid thing to pay attention to if you're three. So uh, tell us about the truth bias and why it is that, like we have this almost instinctual, it seems desire to hear what other people have to say.
5: well, I think um, I, your experience was really fascinating when you said you pent- went past a forest school. I, all kinds of images arose in my in my head besides three year olds sitting on a bench listening to a story. but I think it 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 really points to the fact that no matter how old we are we like to hear stories and we don't like them because they provide a great opportunity for skepticism and questioning all the time right they provide some other kind of they provide some other kind of reinforcement or reward and probably it has something to do with stories being an effective way of conveying cause and effect and uh, you know we actually wrote some about this in our, in our previous book, "The Invisible Gorilla," about how stories really illustrate causal relationships quite, quite well. It's sort of we inherently sort of take chronological events to sort of have, be in some kind of causal chain and so on. But the truth bias is is something that appears to be built into the way we process information. Um, we assume that what someone is telling us or what we read, or any kind of information that's coming in from whatever source, we assume to start with that it's true, and it appears to take some kind of extra effort or additional time to somehow retag it or recode it in memory as false or even just as unknown. So the idea is that if you're in a hurry, if you're distracted, if you're under some kind of cognitive load or something like that, or if you just don't think about it too much, you know, you may retain the idea that something is true when, uh, you know, a bit more reflection, a bit more thought. Um, would have been enough to convince you that it wasn't, and this could be part of why sort of repeating lies sort of tends to, you know, make them acquire a patina of truth because you know sometimes when you hear the lie it might get in you know when you're not you know sort of uh, you know being skeptical enough and retagging it as false right away and it's there for this this bias um, philosophers argue is there for a good reason that you know it, we really couldn't have. Effective conversations with people, or social coordination, or, or, or sort of you know live together as you know as as social creatures with language. If we didn't make the assumption that most of what is coming in is true, um, and that you know lies are the rare exception, and what happens is that people who are trying to con us or scam us or mislead us can take advantage of this and sort of supply a higher ratio of lies to truth, you know, than we are normally used to, and and hope to you know, and hope to get, uh, you know, some of them through that way.
3: I mean, and that applies to so many different uh, uh, advertising strategies as well. Like, for example, you know, you go, yeah, you'd go and do a search somewhere for, say, a new piece of luggage. And then all of a sudden, you know, even though you didn't choose that piece of luggage, that piece of luggage seems to find you on all your social media and all the other websites. And then eventually you're like, that must be some great luggage, because it's everybody, everybody's buying that luggage, because I just keep seeing it, right? And then you end up buying the luggage, right? It's so, like when you
4: have a breakup, and then every song on the radio is about breakups, except that in this well, case, that, it's actually That is objectively true. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah.
5: Yeah, yeah. It would be good uh, if that luggage would really follow you around in real life, though. Like, that would be the, that would be, maybe they're trying to convince us that it's like magic luggage or something.
3: Yeah. Well, it's like, yeah, it's like the little Waymos and cruises in San Francisco that seem to follow me around everywhere, especially when I'm on my bike. So... Okay, so we have this truth bias that's kind of built in. uh, And we also have we know, I mean, everybody listening to this show, I'm sure has heard me talk about before about the confirmation bias in the sense that we seek out information that confirms our beliefs rather than information that uh, disputes or, or, or disconfirms our beliefs. Are there any other Cognitive biases that you have introduced into your book that are lesser known uh, by people who are generally up to speed on sort of the the cognitive bias literature. You
4: know, I'm not sure that I would necessarily refer to what we're describing as as biases. These biases kind of implies that you're you're doing something wrong, right? And in the majority of the cases that we're describing here, we're actually doing what's sensible and right. Just like the truth bias, most of the time people are being truthful with you. It would be terrible to assume that everybody was lying to you all the time, right? Because the base rate of truth is is pretty high, right? Well, the same is true for a lot of the sorts of reasoning habits we have is that most of the time they work really well and save us time, right? They're efficient. So biases might be too strong in that that implies something negative about what we're doing when really most of the time it's, it's fine. So we talk about a bunch of different sorts of uh, habits. That's kind of how we refer to them here, um, which I, is a little bit more neutral in, in framing. But, you know, so one of the ones we talk about uh, is our habit of focus, right? So we tend to focus on the information we have at hand. And most of the time, that's going to do well for us. Um, most of the time, we have the information we need, but occasionally we don't, right? And it's The tendency to focus on only what we have right in front of us, Danny Kahneman refers to it as the uh, what you see is all there is um, sort of heuristic. We kind of tend to think about only what we have right in front of us. And if somebody's looking to deceive you, that makes it quite simple for them. All they have to do is get you to focus on what's right in front of you and you miss it. magicians use this all the time, right? They draw your attention to one thing, you focus on it because it's what you're looking at, what you're paying attention to, and the end result is you don't notice something else. And the key here is that you don't think about the fact that you don't have everything, right? When you're watching Magician, you do think about it, right? You think, okay, how are they doing that? What are they hiding from me? But most of the time, we're not watching the world as a magic show trying to figure it out, right? We're just taking what we're getting and interpreting it. So if somebody's deliberately trying to deceive us, all they have to do is put, in front, put things in front of you that you want to see, right? And you don't think about what they haven't shown you. And that applies in, in even cases that are kind of innocuous, like a company shows you a really cool new demo, right, of some tech new tech uh, toy or a self-driving car or anything like that. And you look at it and say, wow, it just drove from point A to point B with no problems. And we don't tend to think, okay, well, how many times did they try that and have it not get there? How much did they have to stage to make it work, right? Like a magician, how much do they have to to set the stage to make it work the way they wanted it to? How many times you know did they have to reprogram it from the start? Um, does it work in other settings or just in the one that they showed you? But we don't think about, hey, there, there are other settings, right? There are other contexts. Does it work you know, if there happened to be somebody walking across the street? Um, and we don't think about all of those events that we didn't see just like in, in courtrooms when somebody said we showed you an accident reconstruction that's potentially biasing in how you think about it because you see that one interpretation of the event and that's the one that sticks. you don't think about all the other ways the same evidence could have could have emerged.
3: Yeah, two of the tools that you use uh, sort of bring up in your book that people use to deceive are our preference for consistency and showing that something is very precise uh, and, and those two I thought were those kind of made me sit up a little bit because of course, yeah, if something is consistent, that's sort of the definition of when you're talking about good science, right? Like you want to get the consistent result, you want to get the result the same you know, the same way. So, yeah, a consistency is definitely something that we look for, even if we're highly trained in the scientific method. And same thing with precision, you know, how accurate something is, how, how well it is able to hit its target. So tell us how those two tools uh, can be deceptive.
5: I'll start with consistency. I think you're exactly right that it has an inherent appeal to us because we think that things that are well done should be consistent. You know, There should be no errors in a manufacturing process. A scientific experiment should be able to be repeated over and over again and get the same results. I mean, those are all generally good assumptions to make. But we seem to prefer things that are slightly too consistent. So you know, the output of any activity of human beings even a fairly automated activity like a factory or something like that is bound to have some errors or inconsistencies in it. The output of something in a complicated system like the global financial markets, where you have a money manager, let's say, trying to you know earn good returns for his clients invested in his fund uh, over time, that's going to be much more highly variable than, than we would like. And so in the book, we sort of try to shine a, a bit of new light on the case of why Bernie Madoff was able to deceive so many people with his Ponzi scheme for so long. The answer is, well, one of the many answers. It was a complicated scheme. It lasted for a long time. So there are lots of things going on there. But in some ways at its core, he was offering people not outrageous returns like the Ponzi schemes of old, You know, 50% after six months, which many people nowadays know can't really be true. Although in parentheses, I would say that crypto scams really are making a lot of similar kinds of offers and getting away with it, but more sophisticated investors who have a lot of money to put into things like the people who invested with Madoff, um, they know that that's not going to work, but he offered them eight to 12% every year with no down years, almost no down months, and was able to go on for decades with sort of a, uh, you know, what later became to be called the Madoff scheme, you know, it's sort of the new version of the Ponzi scheme and it totally exploited our taste for consistency. People want consistent profits, no losses, and not to have to worry about it, and not to have to notice things going up and down, and you know, and and like real like, like real stock market returns would, you know, and then uh, and then start to worry about uh, about their money. Ironically, they should have been worrying about their money, precisely because it didn't have the ups and downs and the occasional twenty percent down years and thirty percent up years that real, you know, that real stock market returns have. Um, I, I'll let I'll let Dan talk about the 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 precision about the precision one, which is I think equally important.
4: Yeah, and and it's based on the same sort of ideas as you said. Normally, we think of great precision as a sign of things being done well, of, of deep understanding. Right? You can't generate a really precise number, you know, accurately if you don't have a pretty good model of what's going on. Right. So in in physics often trying to measure physical constants, right? You, you can get down to precision of many, many, many decimal places. Right? And lots of publications are focused on just pushing that precision just a little bit more with better measures. right? But for a lot of the sorts of measures we encounter in our daily lives, that precision is phony. We can't measure things to the level of precision that, that people often will claim. And you see this used as a marketing tool all the time. So you'll see websites that promise to you know, 5x your productivity in 45 minutes, right? Well, those are precise numbers, right? You know, exactly five times, not 4.8. And, you know, in 45 minutes, not 47, not five hours. Um, But making it a concrete claim somehow makes it more powerful than saying, hey, if you do this thing, you might do a little better with some practice, right? Which isn't, isn't really compelling sales. But in both of these cases, you know, when you look at people who have committed scientific fraud, right. they capitalize on the idea of consistency and the idea of precision a lot. Right. So they, they take the fact that scientists, just like everybody else, are subject to these same sorts of tendencies. We, we tend to really like consistency. We tend to really like precision. So if you're going to fake stuff, providing fake consistency, replicating it every single time under every condition, and fake precision... reporting things to a great deal, great level of detail, are really common characteristics of of frauds. And some some of the best known scientific frauds involved literally repeating the same data across multiple figures, just with slight tweaks to it. Or a common fraud in intervention studies, which have real consequences for people, medical interventions, involves having all of the baseline measurements be exactly equal across the two conditions, even though people were randomly assigned to get the drug or the placebo, having every single baseline factor match up perfectly, you know, just doesn't happen by chance. Randomness leads to noise, and noise is good, and we should be looking for noise.
0: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. today.
3: So tell us how we, you know, so given that we have these tendencies and, you know, they they even might be some of the pillars of some of the supposedly most objective ways of thinking like the scientific method, how is a person who doesn't want to be anybody's fool uh go around in life without 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 succumbing to to just like the the kind of skepticism that isn't helpful, right? Like if you're skeptical of everything, that is not gonna get you closer to the truth either.
5: unless the truth is found at the bottom of a very long rabbit hole, I guess. Yeah. And usually it's usually it's not, right? That's why we say going down the rabbit hole is a negative expression I mean, this is, rather yeah, than I mean, a positive is, one.
3: In some ways, this is how conspiracy theories can work, right? Where they like bring up all these, like make you skeptical of all these things that then that, that it becomes implausible, right? This whole, yeah. you know, yeah.
5: I, I I guess I would say that, you know, they should read our book, Um, and (laughs) you know, I think one of the things they should, they should take from the book and and part of why, how we constructed the book was we divide the book up into chapters, which describe these different habits and, and hooks that we've been talking about, like focus and consistency and precision and so on. But then cutting across that, we show, we talk about lots of different examples of different scams, cons, misinformation, everyday occurrences, you know, things like that um to try to give a lot of different examples and you can sort of think of it as trying to help people build up their pattern recognition, you know. So when they, you know, right now there are zero people at political rallies who start to think of like, you know, other, you know, other other ways that, you know, what is the speaker telling me that I, you know, that they're what is the speaker not telling me that I would really like to know in order to evaluate the truth of these claims, right? You could be the first person, you know, who goes to political rallies like that and maybe talk some of your friends into it and so on. Um, or you could um Think a little bit more about when you see scientific claims, especially claims of the effectiveness of you know new um, uh, new products, new uh, you know new treatments, and so on. Um, just by sort of starting to recognize those patterns, when does it feel like there might be some deception or misleading or you know conning going on here? And then the other thing I, I the other thing I'd mention is it's important to sort of think about what would be the consequences of being wrong before you devote a lot of energy to making sure that you're. To making sure that you're not deceived, right? Um, I think the consequences can be surprisingly large sometimes. Like, if enough people pass around fake news, it can eventually sort of infect too many people and actually make a difference. So, you know, might not think of it that way right now, but of course, before we retweet and before we share and before we like and so on, we might want to stop and, you know, ask, is that really true? Why am I being shown this, you know, as opposed to something else? But especially when you're picking your financial advisor and, um, you know, picking your, you know, picking the politician you're going to vote for uh, and, uh, you know, any of those higher stakes, you know, choices, that is the time to sit back and and ask more questions.
3: You know, I also think a, a really relevant uh, part of our lives is is in terms of healthcare. So we recently had on the show Leroy Hood and Nathan Price, who wrote a book called *The Age of Scientific Wellness*, where they they balk at the idea of treating diseases primarily, which is what we do, sick care, they call it, and instead uh, ad- advocate for really preventing those diseases and focusing on the ways in which we can measure you know, our bodies and figure out before the disease begins what we are susceptible to and then make those changes. And what that approach uh, really, it, the the sort of foundation that it's built on is the fact that, you know, every person is different, is going to have a different mosaic of potential risks d- depending on their genes and on their lifestyle, et cetera. And, you know, oftentimes you hear these like, well, now all alcohol is bad for you or, you you know dark chocolate is good for everybody or you know all of these like you know these these miracle cures from just tweak this one thing and you're going to live you know 20 years longer if we are entering an age of scientific wellness as they suggest that we should I think it's even more important that people are able to understand whether a claim that they're reading about is justifiable in in terms of the behavior change that it, it's going to make on them so you know recently there was this uh Finding that there's bisphenol A in sports bras and athletic products, and so like, so do should you throw out all your leggings? Because if that's the case, I don't know what I'm gonna wear. Uh, And you know, but like, does it seep into your skin? And there's like, you know, so so uh, tell us about sort of how your your approach to you know wellness to evaluating these claims, especially as we get into an era where potentially big data, artificial intelligence in our homes is gonna allow us to measure so many of these different aspects uh, of our body functioning and our behavior
4: let say two things and you know, just to start off the first is anytime you see a claim of this one thing is going to cure X you should immediately ask is that really true what kind of evidence would I need for that because it's almost never the case that a single simple intervention is going to handle a complex multifaceted problem right so anytime you see that sort of simple one you know one cure for all things, that you should be immediately wary because it's probably too potent a claim, right? So my leggings are
3: not giving me cancer.
4: <clears throat> well, I don't know, right? <laughs> but, um, but the odds are good that there are lots of factors that would contribute to cancer, right? Um, and one, one of the sort of hooks that we talk about is the sort of potency idea that something, a simple thing can have giant consequences. It's like, yeah, on occasion that can happen. Again, for all of these sorts of things, sometimes there really are butterfly effects. But most of the time butterflies don't affect you that much. So that, that's one one important aspect of this. Another is that, you know, one of the real challenges in promoting wellness and not treating it, as, you know, treating disease after the fact, right, is that you know we don't often notice when wellness interventions succeed. We have this problem that we're only noticing the cases where catastrophe happened, and this is a, a problem for everything from engineering and fixing of bridges, you notice when the bridge collapses, you don't, you don't pay that much attention to all of the work that went into making sure it doesn't collapse, right, because it's a negative, right? Um, Ed Young has written about this in, in healthcare, right? That health departments are chronically underfunded except in an epidemic, right? Because they're everybody realized, oh, we need them now because we have to respond to something. But they could do a tremendous amount of work preventing that something from happening in the first place if they were funded to begin with, right? Um, it's a real challenge to figure out when can we put m- money into prevention and wellness when there's not a direct thing that you're trying to address. And that's, I think, one of the sort of reasoning shortcomings that we have is that it, it's we're focusing on the events that are right in front of us, not the ones that didn't happen, right? And it's the ones that didn't happen. More often than not, we could have saved a huge amount of money, but that saving that huge amount of money in many lives doesn't show up on the register.
5: I would add one more point, which is that... um, uh you know it's it's nice to say that we should focus on wellness rather than disease and that's true right we should all adopt healthy habits and you know try to make sure we don't get sick and so on on the other hand it's it's much easier i think for companies and charlatans to make dubious claims about wellness because it's not as regulated nearly as much if someone is going to say this drug will will cure your cancer like they have gone through a very rigorous process with the FDA and you know other agencies and so on you know before they can start telling you that whereas if someone is going to say these herbs will prevent cancer there's that that's that still might be a little bit of a legal issue but it doesn't it's not nearly as high a hurdle you know and not nearly as costly for them to to sort of be be wrapped you know for that so there's a little bit of an asymmetry there that i think we have some in some ways less protection from being fooled in the arena of wellness and prevention than we do in the arena of you know treating diseases that we all know about where there's sort of a more um legal apparatus, you know, that we can sort of fall back on. And it's it's I think it's another good thing to think about when you're thinking about how much effort to invest in in making sure you're you're not being fooled. You know, a lot of financial claims are not very regulated. They're supposedly, you know, investment in some things is restricted to people who are wealthy, but the criteria for being wealthy are actually surprisingly, you know, not just the top 1% of the 1%, but a lot of people count as people who can invest in all kinds of products that are not really that you know that highly regulated, so you need to be. You know, you need to be aware that the risk, you know, might be higher in, in, in some cases where you didn't think it was.
4: That, that's just a general principle too. Like, be, you know, there's a lot of fraud in industries that aren't regulated, including things like crypto or the art. You know, high end art markets. They're not. They're really not regulated all that much. Um, and there's a lot of lot of fraud and deception in those areas because there's not the sort of apparatus to force you to to vet everything.
3: And, you know, in some industries, like if you think about the sort of health health care and, and so the, or the wellness care industry, too, it's it's really it's going to be really hard to create a randomized controlled trial where, you know, nobody gets cancer <laughs> because you're you know, you're you're you know, it's, it's, I mean, I understand that there are some tools that people can use and 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 they can show that. But prevention is hard, as you mentioned, like it's really what's what's the end point? What's you know, what's the outcome measure? The person did not get the disease by X date you know, it's, it's, it's much harder.
4: And even before you get to that point, who enrolls in wellness interventions, right? So if you're doing a cancer intervention, like, well, the people who are enrolling have cancer. Um, if you're doing a wellness intervention, it's people who often are attracted to that particular intervention. So that's a real challenge if you're trying to do, say, mindfulness interventions. Like the people who will, who will want to be in that study are people who are interested in the possibility that mindfulness will help make them better at something.
3: And, you know, that's been a lot of the the, the confounds with a lot of the alcohol studies early on saying that, oh, yes, you know, red wine, you know, makes your your heart function better and live longer. I mean, now we all know that people who can afford to sit around and drink red wine tend to be European. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But uh, no, I mean, they're, you know, that have all kinds of other, there's there are other confounds there. Um, I want to talk uh, a little bit about sort of the future that we're looking at. And, you know, I'm sure my listeners are getting tired of me talking about the bring this up about every single interview, but generative AI is something that I've been thinking about a lot because I do think we are in a sea change. I think this is this is a huge shift in terms of um, how we're gonna be interacting with information in particular. There was recently, uh, a, I believe it was a professor in Texas, maybe I'm getting that wrong, who uh, failed a whole bunch of his students and then gotten into a lot of trouble. He failed his students because he had asked ChatGPT whether ChatGPT had written their essays and they and ChatGPT said, yes, of course I have. I wrote those essays. <laughs> now we know if you've worked You're with ChatGPT. You're right GPT, I ordered the code red. That's right.
5: <laughs> you know,
3: guess Chat what? ChatGPT
5: is up there admitting it, yeah.
3: Yeah, it hallucinates. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know you can I I once asked it to uh to g- to give me a whole bunch of uh, statistics. This is actually a great example of like you know confirmation bias. I had a I had a theory of you know one particular causal relationship, and I just you know asked ChatGPT like you know is this theory true? And if it is, cite your sources. And of course, it came up yes, it's absolutely true. Fifteen percent effect, and here are the sources, all of which were made up. Um, you know, from the journals to the page numbers and the volumes. So, how do we now, as we're going to be relying more and more on artificial intelligence to do a lot of the kind of legwork that we used to do in terms of our own research? Uh, if we're, now we're outsourcing that to these algorithms and these l- um, language learning models, what should be we be vigilant about? And and how do we how do we stay vigilant without also then not capitalizing on the fact that our competitors are going to be using these products
5: i would say start by not being so quick to embrace the use of these products in your own research and writing and so on honestly i, I you know my my experience in prose let's say and you know, i know that coding is different and sort of certain cases with very structured data where following existing patterns is actually likely to get you a really good result, that's one thing, right? I would never deny the advice of a chess computer on what move to play in chess because they're just so good at it and it's a structured environment and so on. But if you ask Chat GPT what the best move is in a chess position, it has no clue. Because, you know, using probabilities of what word to say next, which is what language models are based on, will not give you correct answers in a lot of in a lot of situations. But ChatGPT is often wrong but never in doubt. And the never in doubt part I think is what makes it a bit dangerous, right? Sort of we pay attention to confidence, we have the truth bias, we don't think about other ways that it could be arriving at this. What else could be going on behind this this demo of knowledge, you know, other than actual knowledge? It's just very convincing in that way. So I would say first try to put the brakes on yourself. And I'm a little bit worried about being out competed by bullshit generation, like we all should be, but I'm not sure I want to sort of generate my own bullshit to sort of compete with, you know, the the other bullshit that's being generated. Maybe maybe 6 months from now like all of this will have been solved, maybe a year from now it will have I sort of doubt it based on what I know about how this technology works, it's not suddenly going to get grammar and knowledge plugged into it in a way that well grammar is not a problem it turns out right once you have enough, you know, enough text and so on grammar is almost always right, but it's not suddenly going to have knowledge and models of complicated world systems. You know, in there that will enable it to do all this kind of reasoning, maybe different developments in AI will do that. Um, but I, I really, I have been a bit dismayed, I'll be honest, that people are so sort of quick to embrace this technology as a tool for actually solving their problems and writing, you know, their text and so on. Because, you know, starting with bullshit and then fact checking it and, and copy editing is not the way you get to sort of like true, you know, true representations of, rea- of, of, of reality.
4: You know, I, I would I would think there's there's actually a I mean one of the real dangers for me is that is what's going to happen to education, right? And not because it produces great prose, but it produces good enough prose in a lot of contexts. I mean, I noticed this for my own. I teach statistics, and I, I tested ChatGPT, not even the most recent versions, with the most difficult conceptual questions from one of my exams, right? The sort of thing that okay, it's not going to get this. It'll get computational stuff fine. It nailed it well enough, right? So, you know, we're going to get to the point very quickly, and I've already heard this from colleagues, that for simple writing assignments, um, it's going to do well enough to pass, you know, the rubrics for grading. And that means that the students who actually care, right, the students who are actually going to work have a huge disadvantage, right? The incentives are always against them because they could put hours into writing a three-page essay or... And their peer across the hall throws it into ChatGPT, gets their three-page essay out in 25 seconds, and gets comparable grades. So I really worry about that at at the high school level on on up. I mean, right now, it's still pretty bad. And if you have enough people writing the same sort of essay, you catch it because there was duplication. And I think students are now aware of this. So they're spending probably more time than they would have had to to write the whole thing from scratch, adjusting the ChatGPT output to make it sound different. Like, you know, just just write it and you can actually learn from it. But I, I think this is a big challenge. The The other big factor, in addition to those sort of incentives, is what this is going to do to misinformation. Now, I mean, we already have, you know, email scams at volume because they don't require a whole lot of sophistication. But now you can get, you know, the sort of massive deluge of fake Twitter, you know, fake tweets and fake posts on Facebook and with no cost to generating them. So the 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 misinformation farms are going to, and I'm sure they're already doing this. I'm sure they're already using it. And it can generate different enough responses that you just don't need the human involvement anymore. And that that becomes a real concern when you have the sort of closed circle, you know, it sees a post, generates a bunch of stuff, spits it out as fake posts. It becomes harder and harder to tell, you know, what the signal is, right? And that's the sort of standard tactic of in all sorts of disinformation campaigns. It's it's not so much that you're trying to spread untruths, it's that you just spread so much information and garbage out there that you can no longer find the signal and you can no longer tell what's true and, and what's not. And I don't know what the solution to that is. I mean, that's this is a major problem.
5: I think people are naturally going to, over time, adjust their trust levels and their skepticism levels based on sort of what they perceive as the quality of the source. And right now, maybe we're in a moment where People are applying their previous trust levels for Twitter and you know Facebook and email to an environment which is getting less trustworthy because of the the trends that Dan you know just just outlined. But maybe in the future that will change and people will realize that they shouldn't pay attention to Twitter because it's just a lot of bots tweeting you know tweeting at each other and trying to deceive us. Right? That would be bad for Elon Musk, but you know good for the rest of us if we stop paying attention to bad sources.
4: And the optimistic take is maybe it makes people a little more skeptical of the stuff that fits what they want to believe.
3: So I want to remind our listeners that Dan Simons and uh, Chris Chabrie's book, Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. It's available at booksellers everywhere. It's got a a lovely little picture of a toy wooden Trojan horse, (laughs) Um, which, you know, kind of gets me to the last question, which is that you know, there is this scams are not new. Being deceived uh, is something that has been part of, you know, uh, our, our history since as, as for as long as we've had literature or evidence of, of people telling and writing stories about it. And we are entering an era, as you said, where misinformation is going to be even easier uh, to disseminate. What do you hope for, you know, like, let's say you're optimists. And I'm just, you know, putting that assumption onto you. And you're looking out to the future, the entire world has read your book. Uh, what does it look like now as people are going through their lives that makes them less likely to be fooled?
4: I think one of the one of the key things, as you said, is that these scams have been with us forever, right? I mean, I, I really like the the Trojan horses on the front cover because you know we're dealing with a thousands of year old sort of deception. And I think one thing that we realized in looking through all of these sorts of cons going back years to more recent ones is that they all rely on the same sorts of shortcomings and same sorts of tendencies we have and the same kinds of information we really find appealing. So, you know, th- we can't obviously anticipate all the new variants and there there will be new variants. I mean, you know, crypto scams didn't exist 10 years ago. Um, Nigerian email didn't exist 30 years ago, although it didn't form of actual letters, um, but... All of them rely on the same sorts of principles. So if you kind of start to recognize what's consistent across all of these, and, and when am I when am I at risk of being deceived, and when am, when am I finding something just a little too appealing, when it, when is it exactly what I want to see, it will realize we need to start questioning. So our hope in, in writing the book is that we can give people some tools to try and identify what are what are those sort of hooks that I I should maybe this is a context in which I should be a little more skeptical. Um, and if that's the case, then if you start to recognize them, maybe you're less likely to fall for them. And again, most of the tools are great, most of these things that we do are great most of the time. Um, so you don't want to kind of be a perma-skeptic, constantly questioning everything. It would be completely maladaptive. But thinking about is this the time when being deceived will be really, really bad? And if that's the case, putting in place, you know, kind of checks on yourself can really be helpful.
3: You know, and it also reminds me, um, uh, you know, of some of the work of chess masters, when they, you know, look at a board that's actually in play, they can, you know, they can actually remember it, like it's like a snapshot, they can recreate that board. Uh, but if they look at a board that is just has random uh, collections of, of pieces on it, then they are actually worse than the novices at remembering where the pieces are. And so I, I wonder, Chris, if you want to just comment on how an expertise in understanding how you can be deceived might change the way that we approach uh you know the world in, in in the same way that a chess grandmaster looks at a chessboard and sees something different
5: well as the chess master in this conversation i will endorse <laughs> your i i will endorse your analogy um and i think that it it is a transformation of how you look at things, you certainly, you see the same things, but the perception that they create is different and the memories they create and the categories they fall into are different. So I have found myself after writing this book and over the course of writing it, that I started to notice many, many more, both possibilities for scams and frauds and so on. And some might argue that like I became a little bit hypersensitive at some times and so on, but for most people, it's better to be more sensitive than they are, you know, than they are right now. So i started to notice more possibilities, and also sort of think of think of those kinds of um, uh, those kinds of events, um, fraud, scams, deceptions, and so on, in different categories, and sort of think of them in terms of the underlying cognitive mechanisms that they're exploiting. Um, some of the research on expertise sort of looks at the way this is. You know, from the seventies and eighties, but would look at the way that physicists would classify physics problems as opposed to physics students, right? And they sort of group them in entirely different ways. So if you look at you know, certain kinds of frauds and you say, oh, those are, those are exploiting consistency or precision or whatever, it gives you, I think, a deeper way of understanding them and therefore maybe makes you better at recognizing them and figuring out how to avoid them in the future. This is all a little bit of an ineffable process. It's just sort of how we acquire skills through practice over time. Um, it's hard to sort of feel it in yourself while it's happening, but I'm pretty confident that it will happen if people uh, really read the book and, and sort of start to look at the world through those eyes.
4: One of our goals in having lots of different kinds of cons in, in all of the chapters was to highlight what's common about them, what's underlying them as you know, so that people don't say, okay, here's, here's somebody who's forging art and here's somebody who's running a Ponzi scheme. And like you can think of those as completely different things on their surface, but they might be relying on exactly the same underlying human tendencies. And that's that's what we wanted to try and convey. And our hope is that you know, seeing enough of these examples, you start to kind of take that different reorganization of the, of the structure of deception in, into kind of the way you think about it.
3: Well, Dan and Chris, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds.
4: Thanks for
2: having us on.
5: Thanks for having us. That was fun.
2: So that's it for another episode. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to hear an ad-free version of the show, please consider supporting us over at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And we want to especially thank patrons Jay Henry, Joelle, Yushi Lin, David Noel, Charles Blyle, and Herring Chang. Thank you so much. Inquiring Minds is produced by me, Adam Isaac, and is hosted by Indre Viscontis.
0: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards.